Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Dennis, one of the pastors here at Garden City. Um, we're going to be continuing in our series on the Gospel of Mark. If you want to get your devices, Bibles, we will have verses on the side screens, but we are in Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. And in particular this morning, we're going to be talking through the way that Jesus responds to an individual person and to entire groups of people that the Jewish religious system sought to exclude. We'll see that 2,000 years ago, people who identified as followers of God were actually some of the most judgmental people in their culture. So how did Jesus respond to the judgmental religious leaders of his day? How did he respond to those deemed most unclean and impure by the Jewish religious system? And what does it all mean for us today? Our story picks up with Jesus in Capernaum having just healed a paralyzed man, beginning in verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Mark tells us in verses 13 and 14 that a large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. As he walked along the Sea of Galilee, Jesus sees Levi sitting at a tax collector's booth. He calls out to Levi, who immediately, we're told, gets up and leaves his tax collector's booth. He leaves his profession, he leaves his source of income and immediately follows Jesus. Now, I want to make sure that we notice two specific details in these verses and then talk about why those two details are significant. One, Jesus is surrounded by a large crowd. It's a really simple detail, and yet I think it's important in the scope of our entire passage it's significant because it means a large number of people witnessed Jesus invite Levi to become one of his disciples. Lots of people saw Jesus look at Levi, a tax collector, and invite Levi to become one of his followers. 
hundreds of witnesses to this moment. The other detail is that Levi is a tax collector, likely a type of customs agent who collected taxes on commercial transactions and transported goods. He's Jewish, and he's likely wealthy. He's also hated, not just by the Jewish religious leaders, but by every one of his Jewish sisters and brothers. And in particular, he's hated by four of Jesus' already existing disciples. If we go back just to Mark chapter 1, we see Jesus call four disciples who were all fishermen who fished in the Sea of Galilee. And fishermen who fished in the Sea of Galilee would have had to bring their goods to Levi who would have taxed them, who would have cheated them, who would have robbed them, who would have taken from them. Just inside of Jesus' disciples, this invitation to Levi is problematic. Tax collectors were reviled by Jewish women and men. It was well established that tax collectors made their money by charging higher than necessary taxes. The Roman system of taxation depended on corruption and greed, and it attracted people who were comfortable with both. In other words, we're to read the story and understand that Levi is not an upstanding or moral person by Jewish religious standards. Rabbinic writings included tax collectors with thieves and murderers. Jewish tax collectors could not serve as witnesses in court. They were expelled from the religious life of their community, and they were considered to be ritually unclean. Two weeks ago, Pastor Shaq talked us through a passage of Jesus healing a leper. It would have been less offensive for a righteous Jewish person to come into physical contact with a leper than it would have been for them to come into physical contact with a tax collector. Jewish law actually granted permission for Jewish women and men to lie to tax collectors in order to avoid paying their full taxes. I mean, think about that. One of the Ten Commandments forbids lying, and yet the Jewish religious system created a special dispensation so that Jewish people could lie to tax collectors without having to consider it breaking the law. And despite all of this, Despite all of these cultural realities and religious realities, Jesus invites Levi to follow him and to become one of his disciples. But why are, are those two details about the large crowd and Levi being a tax collector so significant? Jesus invites Levi to belong when all of Jewish religious culture was set up to exclude him. The Jewish religious system was functioning as designed, separating the clean from the unclean, the righteous from the unrighteous, designating who was in and who was out. Levi was worse than a leper. And yet, Jesus invites Levi to follow him on purpose. 
Jesus wasn't walking along the Sea of Galilee, spitballing and making it up as he went. And it's not likely a coincidence that Jesus extends this invitation in front of this large crowd. Jesus is making a point, and he wants as many witnesses to it as possible. But what point could he be making? Could it be that Jesus is signaling to the crowds that the kingdom of God includes people that they think should be excluded? That even though every righteous Jewish person considers Levi to be corrupt to his core, Jesus sees him as someone to be loved and accepted and included. That even though the religious leaders see Levi as beyond hope, Jesus sees a person who, if they were just given the space to belong, just given the opportunity to follow him, might someday according to early church historians, become a missionary to Ethiopia where he will be martyred for his faith. Jesus invites Levi to follow him, even though the entire Jewish religious system was configured to exclude him and keep him on the outside. The story continues in verse 15. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? The story immediately moves from the Sea of Galilee and Jesus inviting Levi to follow him to Jesus attending a party at Levi's house, but not just any party. Three times, Mark makes sure to mention that Jesus is attending a party with tax collectors and sinners. And I've learned throughout my years studying the Bible that if a biblical author is going to repeat the same word or phrase three times in two verses, we should pay attention to it. And I've learned that Jesus always knows what he's doing. Everything he does is intentional. It's on purpose, but we'll come back to that. For now, let's focus on the tax collectors and sinners language. We know that tax collectors are reviled by upstanding Jewish people, that coming into physical contact with one of them is worse than coming into contact with a leper. But what does Mark mean when he says sinners? To be honest, for years... I've just assumed that that word sinners was likely a broad catch-all word that could really mean almost anything. I just assumed that it broadly referred to any kind of sinner. I was wrong. The word that Mark uses is closely associated with the word wicked that's used throughout the Psalms. And it's a word that's used extensively in Jewish rabbinic writing. And in both the Psalms and the rabbinic writings, it is a well-defined term. The sinners Mark writes about are under-resourced and uneducated. They're thieves, predatory lenders, violent criminals, prostitutes, sexual outsiders, addicts, 
and extortionists. They're people who exist well outside of the Jewish religious system and community. And they exist outside of it by choice. They know the law. And they simply choose not to abide by it. They are categorically beyond redemption. At least according to the psalmist and rabbinic writings. But Jesus is at the party with them. But not just at the party with them. He's intimately engaged with them. Mark tells us that Jesus is reclining at the table with the sinners and tax collectors. The Greek language points towards a relational and physical intimacy that Jesus is demonstrating. He's not just at the party. He is at a table reclining with the people beyond redemption. In Jewish culture, the table is the center of communal and relational life. It's the place you gather with your family and friends. And reclining at the table is culturally understood as a physical demonstration of acceptance. To recline with someone at the table is to demonstrate solidarity with the person. It's to demonstrate support to the person. Are we really meant to read this passage and believe that Jesus is demonstrating solidarity with thieves, predatory lenders, violent criminals, prostitutes, sexual outsiders, addicts, and extortionists? Is Jesus actually expressing support for tax collectors and sinners? Yes. And this is where I think it's important to return to the idea that Jesus always knows what he's doing. Everything he does is intentional and on purpose. Jesus knew what it meant to attend a party with tax collectors and sinners. He knew what the religious leaders would think about him and say. He knew what it meant to recline at a table with them. I mean, he's at the party reclining at a table in a place where other people like the Pharisees could see him. Just like in calling out Levi in front of a large crowd, Jesus is expressing support and solidarity with people the Jewish religious women and men considered to be the most damnable in all of Jewish society, and he's doing it in the open for everyone to see. The people who were outside the party, the Pharisees, believed that if they attended the party and shared a table with these people, they'd be ritually unclean. In essence, they believed attending the party was sinful, that it was no place for an upright, righteous Jewish person to be, that their purity mattered more than relationship with the lost. And they based this, and this might be 
challenging for many of us to hear. They rightfully based this on their understanding of Old Testament law. But Jesus knows the law too. Church, he knows the law better than the Pharisees. And apparently, Jesus is willing to transgress the Old Testament law in order to build intimate relationships with the people considered to be the most damnable in all of Jewish society. I'll say that again. Jesus believed that deep friendship with tax collectors and sinners was apparently more important than strictly adhering to Old Testament purity laws. For Jesus, offering himself in love to the people the Jewish religious system had excluded was more important than a strict adherence to the law. Jesus, in public view, chooses to express support and solidarity with the people the Jewish religious system had labeled dirty, wretched, wicked, and beyond hope. Jesus offers acceptance and belonging to people an entire system had deemed unacceptable. Would we do the same? would we risk our reputations like Jesus did? Would we care more about building deep, supportive relationships with people outside the Christian community than we would maintaining our own religious purity? The story ends with Jesus overhearing the Pharisees ask his disciples a question. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? He replies, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. It's actually a slightly sarcastic reply. That if we read it in the original language, we would pick up on the fact that Jesus is being sarcastic in his reply to the Pharisees, who didn't even dare ask the question to him. We should hear it this way. It isn't those who think they're healthy who need a doctor, but those who know they're sick. I have not come to call those who believe they're righteous, but those who know they're sinners. Now, what does this story mean for us today? Two things, I think. First, we need to grapple with the reality that each one of us is deeply loved and accepted by Jesus. Every one of us, right as we sit today, just as we are, is deeply loved and accepted by Jesus. I know it sounds simplistic, 
like I'm just repeating a truth you already know. And yes, I am. You know that the gospel teaches us that Jesus accepts us, but functionally, so many of our lives tell a different story. We might believe in our head that we're accepted by Jesus, but our hearts don't trust it. Because we know that we look at porn. We know that we drink too much, and when we drink too much, we're a jerk to our friends and partners and kids. We know that we lust. We know that we're greedy, unable to be generous with our neighbors. We know the lies we've told this week. We know the unethical choices that we've made at work. Unethical choices that might actually have led to a promotion for some of us. We know that we cheat. We know the people that we hate. You know all these things and more. And we cannot bring ourselves to believe that Jesus still in the midst of all of our sin and brokenness, accepts us fully. Somewhere along the way, we forgot that we belong to Jesus because he loves us, not because of our purity or our moral uprightness or our most recent religious achievements. Somewhere along the way, we started believing that our standing with Jesus was dependent on how well we perform the Christian faith. And because of this, so many of us are discouraged in our faith. We can't understand why or how Jesus would still want to be in a relationship with us when we know all of our darkness and brokenness. Or we're apathetic in our faith. We've come to a point where we're just not interested or enthusiastic about Jesus because we believe wrongly that he's not interested in or enthusiastic about us. Or we start misrepresenting the truth because we're so bought into the belief that our religious achievements earn us Jesus' acceptance and so we lie to ourselves and to others about the health and vitality of our faith and service. How's your relationship with Jesus? Spend an hour with him this morning. Or we become hard people, uncompromising people, people whose lives are marked by fearfulness, defensiveness, and a constant criticism of everyone who doesn't agree with the way we see the world and Christianity. Because when we can't believe that Jesus loves us, our faith in his ability to love us is fragile. Church, Jesus loves us. He loves you. He accepts you. He wants to recline at a table with you. Just sit with that for a moment. Right now, 
you're fully accepted. The Apostle Paul writes these words in 1 Timothy. He says, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Church, that each one of us might be able to speak these words like Paul did and believe them, really believe them, not only in our head, but in our heart. Jesus did not come to call those who think they're healthy, but those who know they're sick. There's another thing we need to take from this, I think. We need to be a faith community that communicates acceptance, demonstrates love, and offers belonging to everyone. No matter who they are, no matter where they're from, no matter what they've done, no matter who they love. We must be a community where our cultures, tax collectors, and sinners can be known, valued, supported, and belong. We must be a church that does the equivalent of reclining at the table with the people dominant Christian culture has labeled as beyond hope and too far gone and beyond redemption. Now, I want to take a moment and focus our conversation in one specific direction. There are lots of directions, but I want to focus on one. It's Pride Month. And at least based on my experience in the church, too often we communicate to our LGBTQ neighbors that this is not a space where they'll be welcomed. That this is not a space where they can be valued, supported, loved, given the space to belong, or even truly the opportunity to be known. Because as soon as they risk sharing the reality of who they are, they experience judgment. In fact, according to Barna, a Christian research organization, and this is like Christians telling on Christians, 62% of Christians, 62% of people who say they love Jesus also say the church is anti-homosexual. 62% of Christians say that their church is anti-homosexual. Almost two-thirds of Christians telling on themselves saying out loud that they hate queer people. Too often, churches require our LGBTQ sisters and brothers to either renounce or deny their sexual orientation or gender identity in order to be accepted into the Christian community. 
We use words like abomination to refer to people made in the image of God, people who Jesus freely and without condition offers himself to, people Jesus seeks to build deep supportive relationships with, people Jesus reclines at a table with. Our LGBTQ sisters and brothers are people to be accepted, supported, encouraged, and loved, full stop. We will be a church that holds space for our LGBTQ sisters and brothers. We will be a church that seeks to take Jesus' posture of building deep, supportive relationships with our gay neighbors. Now, something that I've come to understand over the years is that we will also be a church that is asked by other churches and other Christians to clearly articulate our detailed position on LGBTQ issues and to preferably post it in the form of a white paper to our website. I may have had this conversation a few times over the past year. <laughs> in essence, we'll be asked to pass a purity test. Are our beliefs good enough, true enough, pure enough, well-documented enough before an existing religious Christian would even consider walking through the doors of our church. They'll ask us to identify what we believe is sin and what we believe is permissible so that they can enter in and maintain their sense of purity. We won't do it. <laughs> Pastor Shaq and I have talked a lot about this. We do not believe that our website or our platform is the proper place to pastor or shepherd the people in our community who identify as part of the LGBTQ community. And I'm well aware that by taking this position, there will likely be people who refuse to become part of our church community. They'll say that they just don't know how to be a part of a community that intentionally and on purpose encourages people who they believe are open and unrepentant sinners to belong. They'll stand outside of our community and say, why do you let those people belong? And this will be our response. Jesus did. Jesus believed LGBTQ people were worthy of relationship, of being invited into the community, and so do we. Now, let's take a moment and just breathe together. There's a lot that we've discussed so far. Puppies or emotional support animals would be really great right now. Thank you for that suggestion. You might be sitting there feeling a certain kind of way. I wanna encourage you to pay attention to those feelings, to try to name them. Are you confused? Are you angry? You just feel uncomfortable? I want to give you a moment and I want to acknowledge what you're feeling, to acknowledge what you're thinking, and to breathe. Because I know 
that for those in the room who feel uncomfortable with what I just said, I know that you feel uncomfortable with it because you want to really love Jesus too. I know that every one of us comes to this conversation trying to figure out what it means to really love Jesus, to honor God, to do what we believe is right. So we can make space for our feelings. We can acknowledge them and we can hold them. Friends, Jesus shared a table with people that the Jewish religious system had identified as beyond hope. He reclined with them. Jesus intimately embraces the posture of building relationships with people the religious authorities had decided were impure. Jesus, through his presence, communicated acceptance and love to tax collectors and sinners. I'm not saying that he looked at them in their sin and said, go on, keep stealing money from people. But he believed that even as they were stealing money from people, they were worthy of relationship. Jesus, through his presence, communicated acceptance and love. Not in spite of people's sin, but in the midst of it. In the midst of their stealing and predatory lending. In the midst of their violence and prostitution. In the midst of their addiction and greed. In the midst of their poverty and lack of education. They were found by righteousness. They were captured by grace. They were won by love. Jesus wants all of God's children to come home. Jesus wants all of God's children to experience true belonging. And Jesus knows that the place true belonging begins for every person, even in the midst of their sin, is in relationship with him. 